Okay, so to develop this uh, motivation of altruism, we think about the benefits of bodhicitta, and that's very important to spend some time on. Yeah, so we really uh, develop some enthusiasm for it. Because if we don't really see the benefits, then instead we'll just say, oh, well, bodhicitta, yeah, it sounds great. Love and compassion, altruism sound great. I guess I should be more loving and compassionate. It sounds really good. I should be kinder, you know. And so the development of bodhicitta then becomes another should for us. So this is why, you know, in all these teachings, they so often talk about the advantages of, of a particular practice beforehand so that it doesn't become a should, it becomes an I want to. And that's why it's important to consider the advantages and the benefits um, in our meditation session, you know, so that we really know it. Then the mind's kind of naturally enthusiastic. Then in order to develop bodhicitta, there's two methods. There's the seven points of cause and effect, which I briefly described last time, and then and more in more extensive depth before. And then there's the second method of equalizing and exchanging self and others. I personally like this this method of equalizing and exchanging self for others because it, to me it, it really hits. Um, to me, it takes democracy into the Dharma. I mean, the real meaning of democracy, yeah, the real meaning of, of equality, um, which is that we all equally want happiness and we all equally want freedom from um, from pain and affliction, yeah, and that our own personal traumas are are no more severe, no more important than than anybody else's, and our own personal wish for happiness again is is no more important than that of anybody else. And that to me really strikes at a lot of what we cultivate in this country, which is our our individualism and our egoism and our, our thing of, you know, me, 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 me first, me first, got to stick up for myself, got to go out and get what I want, you know. Um, I mean, we're, we're all the children of people who immigrated to this country because they didn't fit in where they used to belong and they came here to get what they wanted. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we kind of have this, this certain inherited, this is our, our culture, I think, as well as it being a, just a general distinction of sentient beings that we cherish ourselves first and everybody else comes afterwards. And this one of equalizing self and others, I think, really hits at this point that we only cherish our, ourself first out of habit, that that's the only reason why we do, is out of habit. In other words, when we look for any kind of logical reason why we are more important, why our happiness is more essential, why our pain is more harmful than anybody else's, we can't find any particular reason except that it's mine. Yeah, besides saying it's mine, there's no other reason, you know. But then when we say it's mine, well, then the thing is, you know, what does mine mean? For me, mine means here, and for you, mine means there, and for you, mine means there, and for you, mine means there. So mine, for each of us, yeah, is is a very relative thing. There's no objective thing which is mine or me or I. You know? But what we call I is something that we have merely labeled 
on top of, you know, our body and mind. And then because of so much habituation of identifying I, 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 you know, and because of so much solidification, you know, the mind solidifying this I and cherishing this I, then we've really convinced ourselves very well that somehow we're more important than everybody else. Yeah. But when we come to see how relative just the label I is, you know, that it's as relative as this side of the room and that side of the room, because it could easily change in this side of the room and that side of the room, and you point to different things. And so self and others can very easily change. It just depends where you're standing, where you're, habitu- where you're looking at it, how you habituate yourself. And to me, this is really jarring, you know, when I really stop and think about the whole reason that everything that happens in my life seems so incredibly important is simply because I'm I'm in a habit of thinking that way. It's like, you know, things start to shake a little bit. You know, it's like an earthquake on a sandy beach, everything's shaking. Because, you know, the whole foundation of, of all my reasons why I'm so important begins to really lose out. And especially, you know, because we associate so strongly with this body. And we identify this body either as I, or sometimes we grasp onto it as mine, you know, with this incredible attachment. But then when we begin to see that, you know, that there's no inherent I or mine affiliated with this body, that again... It's completely due to habit. It's completely due to concept that we're that we're so entrenched. Our concentration is so entrenched on what happens to this body. Because if we look at it, you know, this body actually it came from our parents. The genetic makeup came from our parents. And aside from the genetic makeup, it's an accumulation of broccoli, cauliflower, bananas, and whatever else we happen to eat since we were born. Yeah. And besides that, there's nothing about this body that I can, you know, what's mine in this body? It's an accumulation of food that was grown by other beings, or maybe even the bodies of other beings, and my parents' genes. So what about it is me? How come everything that happens to this body is so incredibly important? Really, it's just habit. So what we're trying to do in this meditation of equalizing, exchanging self and others is not say I become you and you become me, but rather the object of what we cherish so much gets equalized and then exchanged. So rather than now the object which we cherish is here, yeah, uh, and everything else is there, then we equalize that. We begin to see others just as much as we want happiness and don't want pain. And then we even begin to be able to exchange it so that what we call I, we see, well, actually, we could label I on everything else and call other this one here. And so in Shantideva's text, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, you know, there's a whole meditation in which you practice labeling I on all the other sentient beings and labeling other on this one. And it's quite interesting. Yeah. It really, it's really quite arbitrary. So this really gives us the possibility 
of exchanging self and others in terms of developing a very deep-seated concern for others' welfare that isn't um, put on, but rather that that's something that can come um, with as much intensity as we now cherish this one here. And then especially as we begin from there to go on and think more and more of the disadvantages of just simply cherishing ourselves and the advantages of cherishing others, then this, you know, really bolsters the meditation because we begin to see that this cherishing of the self, which we usually associate with bringing happiness, when we start to examine it on a much deeper level, the cherishing of the self, meaning this one here, actually brings much more suffering. And we can, you know, we again, we can see, you know, when... Um, I mean, it, it's just so interesting when your friends have problems and your friends and come and tell you all their problems and everything, and you can just look at it and kind of see how they're exaggerating and, you know, how it's like it's really not that serious and you actually could let it go. You could live, look at it a different way. I mean, it seems real obvious when we hear our, our friends' problems. Or when you talk to your family, you know, and everything that's bothering your parents and your siblings and, you know, I mean, it's, well, we can look at it and say, what, what's everybody getting so so uptight about, you know, making all this fuss about. But on the other hand, when it happens to us, we're not making a fuss. We're not exaggerating. We're not getting stuck in our ego. We're really seeing things absolutely as they exist. And, and, and it's really, you know, this is really a major thing that's happening. Yeah. And so you see, just by how we're looking at, at something, our mind, somehow when it's related to the eye, it becomes a much bigger deal than when it's related to anybody else. And so automatically through that, we begin to exaggerate the importance of a lot of things that happen. Yeah? And we make a lot more problem for ourselves because, you know, the more we cherish ourselves, the more we become so exceedingly sensitive that almost any little thing is apt to, to offend us. You know, because we are so constantly vigilant about protecting the eye, you know, protecting our body, protecting our reputation, protecting the part of us that likes to be praised and approved of, that it's like we have this incredible sensitive radar device scanning for anything that could possibly get in the way, from, way of this. You know, so we become so easily offended, so touchy, so sensitive. And that in itself just makes more and more problems for us. Because then people who very often didn't mean to offend us, we interpret what they say as offensive. And then, you know, we come back and, well, why did you say this? And they're going, oh, well, if you say I'm offending you, well, yeah, why are you attacking me? And they attack back, you know. And we, we really get into it. Okay, so sometimes just the super sensitivity, um, you know, sometimes it picks up things that are there. Sometimes it picks up things that aren't there. But in any case, it, it, it you know, makes everything kind of very, very important. No, I'm not saying, again, you know, when there's conflict, you just gloss over it. Like somebody's mad at you, so you just pretend they aren't. I mean, if somebody's mad at you, it's something to, you know, kind of, somebody's in pain, they're, they're miserable if they're mad at us, it's good if we go and talk to them and figure out what's happening, 
now because maybe we did do something unintentionally or maybe, you know, there's something going on. So it's not a sense of just whitewashing everything, but it's not, you know, it's it's kind of getting over this thing of, you know, oh, how's everybody looking at me and, you know, what are they saying to me and what are they thinking about me and how am I doing and all this because it just creates so much pain, you know, inside of us. Okay, and then the the self-cherishing mind also makes us, um, it gets us into, into this trilogy of jealousy for the people who do better than us, competitiveness with the people who are equal to us, and arrogance over the people who we consider inferior. You know, so again, by this strong emphasis on the self, then we're always ranking ourselves. You know, whenever we meet somebody, we're always, we always have to rank. You know, am I above, equal, or less? And then as soon as we do that, then, you know, we get jealous, proud, or competitive. And none of those three emotions, you know, or tactics seem to bring us much happiness. So, you know, again, that all comes from the, from the self-cherishing mind. The whole reason why we aren't yet Buddhas, yeah? I mean, some people say, well, you know, Shakyamuni Buddha did it. How come I'm still here? And, you know, my mind, I keep practicing, and, you know, my mind just is, you know, like stuck in this rut, you know. Well, the basic thing that, that you know, why we aren't Buddhists yet is because this is this self-centered mind. Because it's kind of run the show up until now. And so it's kind of one of the main things that makes difficulty in, in our spiritual practice. You know, why weren't we born Rinpoche's and Tulku's and, on um, you know, why weren't we born on the path of seeing and having already spontaneous bodhicitta? Well, basically because we didn't cultivate it in the past. Why didn't we cultivate it in the past? For the same reason we have so much, cult- you know, difficulty cultivating it now. Because our mind thinks of 10 million other things to do. And what is that mind that's making us perpetually distracted, that thinks of the 10 million other things to do? It's the self-centered mind. Now, it's the self-centered mind that's always looking for some little bit of pleasure somewhere, something, you know, and really distracting ourselves from the basic opportunity to tap into our Buddha potential that we have. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's been very constant, but in some ways it seems like we've really developed it, like gourmet chefs, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, kind of sampa compared to chocolate cake. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I think that part of it, you know, I I speak about this often, is the fact that, you know, just the way kids are raised, kids are asked, you know, from the time you're two years old, what do you like, orange juice or apple juice? Do you want to ride your bicycle or do you want to go swimming? Do you want to watch this TV program? Do you want to watch that TV program? So in the effort to make children happy, what we do is we give them so much choice that they get confused, and they then have to turn so much attention to figuring out what is going to give me the most pleasure at this time, orange juice or apple juice. And then that perpetuates as adults so that we have incredible difficulty making decisions. Because we're trying to eke out every single little bit of pleasure 
out of every circumstance we can possibly get it at. You know, and then we think happiness means having a mul- you know, as many choices as we can have. And then we get totally confused. Because we can't figure out what's going to make us the happiest. And then we're always wondering all this mulling over in our mind. What do I really want? What's really bad? You know? And, and so somehow we get real, real stuck on ourselves. Yeah? That's really confusing for me what you say. Because mm-hmm. um, um, my parents were the kind of people who were making choices for me all the time. Mm-hmm. So when I went to, when I became 18, they said, okay, we're done with the choices. Now go into life and make your choices. And I had never learned to make choices for uh, myself. Uh-huh. So now that I'm raising my kids, I've been told that if I teach him how to make his choices, gradually when he gets older he knows enough of himself so that he can make his choices mm. more so confident. Yeah. So what you're saying really confusing. Yeah, okay. I think it's it's what kind of choices we're teaching kids to make. Because I agree with you, it is important to teach kids how to make choices. But to make them sensitive to what are important choices and what are not so important choices because we often get really stuck on the unimportant choices, you know, so that when kids get really stuck about, do I want to play with the pink ball or the green ball, you know, it's like, I think we could teach them to make other kinds of choices that are more important than rather just real small things that cause them to become, you know, to constantly turn inwards. What's going to make me the happiest, pink or green? But rather other kinds of decisions that, you know, are, are, you know, kind of more important. You know, like it's cold outside today. What clothes do you think you could put on so that you'll be comfortable? You know, so they learn to think about things like that rather than, you know, orange juice and apple juice. And, yeah. So, you know, so often in our life, you know, when we look at at a lot of the difficulties that are going on at any particular moment, most, you know, the difficulties we have in this life and the difficulties in our spiritual life and the difficulties that are getting created for future lives, so much of it traces back to this overemphasis on self, you know, and just always me, 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 me. And sometimes it, it even comes into our spiritual practice, too. Yeah? And it's like, my meditation session, you know. <laughs> my this and my that. My altar. And I have such a nice altar. And, you know, it's my turn to drive the Dalai Lama somewhere. And, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just, just. All sorts of, you know, the self-cherishing moves, moves right in along with everything else. Uh, so it's just real interesting, you know, to reflect on and, and recognize where, you know, in our attempt to be happy, we actually create the cause for our own unhappiness. And when we can see that real clearly in our own life, you know, that we really want to be happy, but because of our in own ignorance, because of our own self-cherishing, we often basically just create the cause for more confusion now and in the future when we can really 
see that in our own life and see make real clear examples of it, then we can begin to have compassion for ourselves. You know, because we realize that we really do wish ourselves well, but it's because of this mind that's just habituated, you know, with the self-grasping and with the self-cherishing that we keep on doing counterproductive things. So we begin to develop some some real genuine compassion for ourselves and patience with ourselves. And from that, then we can spread that to others. And we can realize that other beings, too, want happiness, but they're stuck with the same ignorance and the same self-cherishing that we are, and that they're, you know, making more and more difficulties for themselves, too, in spite of their wish to be happy. And then that can evoke a feeling of tolerance and compassion for others. Okay? And then that becomes a real, it's a much deeper kind of compassion and acceptance of, of what we are and what others are. It's not just painting on some kind of plastic um, acceptance or plastic compassion. Okay. 